The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Our series of shining our light, shining the light of God into the world, the light of Christ that is in us and illuminating our lives, uh, of shining that into the world, we pick up this morning with the passage that you've just heard, of uh, picking up from the place of the apostle, the pastor of John, the only remaining one, who in his latter years, he was writing these last few epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, was writing things that, it's not that what he had previously written or said didn't matter, the gospel obviously, or the revelation that he saw, but pastorally now he comes and he speaks and he says, I want you to know these things. And he speaks with such a dignity and a love. A man seasoned in his faith. A man humbled over the course of his life. But a man who, who knew Christ intimately. Who said, I, I want you to know Christ in the same way that I have known Him. I want you to abide in Him. I want you to make a a declaration that this is what I stand for. This is who I am. This is how I relate to Him. He he would come and He'd say, I'd love for you to have a meal with Christ. Because I've had a meal with Him. I I remember sitting with Him at a table and leaning back against Him. I could hear His heart beating in my ear. I felt His breath upon uh, me. I, I, I took... Food from his hand. I I saw the miracle of fish and loaves uh, distributed and multiplied. I sat with him after the resurrection and and ate with him there. I want you to listen to the knock on the door. For it says that I knock, Christ speaking. And I want to come in. That's not a passage of Scripture for the non-believer, by the way. It's written to the church. Where Christ is knocking, uh, in a sense, for the believer, for the follower, and saying, I want to come in, and I want to dine with you. I want to have deep, intimate fellowship with you. I want to break bread with you. That's a bit of a reason why we jokingly talk about a theology of food and of meal within the church. That in these gatherings of a life group, in the gathering yesterday of hundreds here at the church, that there's something about being around the table. That you talk around the table. That you break bread around the table. That it is meaningful. And John was saying, this is what I want you to know. And he goes, little children, I want you to be assured of your faith in the world. I want you to have a confidence that one day when you see Christ... You won't have to shy away. That you will have an incredibly humbled confidence, but a confidence nonetheless. That when He appears, that's actually good news for you. And not fearful news. And so he begins and he continues this writing of saying, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. And those whom are His followers, those whom He has called out of the world, are now children of light. And that light shines through them. And the question becomes, what does light have to do with darkness? Pastorally, He would ask the question, are you wrestling with the darkness that you see both in the world and the darkness that you see residually in your own soul? 
Are you applying the truth of this message, the truth of this letter? Are you applying it in such a way that it's affecting you to think this trigger that's been triggered, how I normally respond to this trigger, maybe sinfully, with anger, with excess, with a sinful behavior, what what do I have to do with that? I'm light. And I don't want to go to darkness. I want to be drawn to light. So when the temptation comes, instead of being drawn to the dark of the temptation, we're drawn back into the light by the application of this word that we have. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about John's concern here in this section about abiding in Christ. Abiding, it doesn't mean just staying, but it means a sense of I am declaring that this is right and I am going to align myself. I'm going to abide by these rules. I'm going to follow this way of life. I'm going to abide in Christ. I'm going to follow Him in this manner of life. And John has three pastoral concerns, which would be three that I would echo to you, and then I will teach or explain these pastoral concerns in the midst of the outline that we have. But the concerns are these. Do you understand the profound change that has taken place in your life through the cross of Jesus Christ? Do you understand the profound change that has taken place in your life through the cross of Jesus Christ? If you are a follower of Christ, do you really get that? Do you celebrate it? Are you astonished by it? If you are tipping your toe into Christianity, into the church again, I want you to be astonished today of what happens. That, 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 that great change that takes place through the Gospel. And then, pastorally, do you see the incongruity of the attitude of indifference to sin with who you now are in Christ? The church has a general indifference towards sin. Sin, don't sin, it doesn't matter. You got Jesus. But do you understand that this profound change has to move us to a place of being concerned about virtue and holiness and righteousness in our own life and within the life of the church? Do we take sin seriously or do we take it lightly? And then the final pastoral concern would be, does the beauty of the work of Christ show up in your life through genuine love for others? This abiding in Christ, this recognizing the profound change that's happened, which then leads to a concern in our lives for light over darkness, for virtue over sin, that it also then comes out by being shown as a gracious loving, uh, lovingness towards other people. So those are the pastoral concerns Uh, today. And we're going to unpack those pastoral concerns in in this simple outline. First, the gospel powerfully changes your life. The gospel powerfully changes your life. John says, he interrupts himself. It's like he begins in verse 28 and he's starting down there on this new section in his letter. Little children, abide in him so that when he appears you have confidence, don't shrink away, that you know that he is righteous, that you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. It's like he goes to verse 4 is where he should go. But he stops himself and goes, oh, whoa, whoa, hold on a second. I, want you, I have to remind you of something first. You're children of God. I, I have to remind you, parentheses, verse 1. See what kind of love 
the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Someone was asking Him that question. Why? Why doesn't the world accept us? We love Christ. I'm a good person. I'm a loving person. I'm a virtuous person. Why don't they accept us? And he goes, because they didn't accept him. You can't expect them to accept you. Don't think that they would accept you and they didn't accept him. It goes together. that They reject him. They reject you. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John points to the indicative first. Then the imperative. Too often in your theology, too often in the church, we start with the imperative. Clean up your act. And then you get to be a child of God. Quit messing up so much and then you get the last name. John is saying, nope, indicative first. You are a child of God. Purchased with a great cost to Him. That God gave His only Son. That you might call Him Son, or call Him Father. That He has implanted within you the Spirit of Christ. And that you look up and go, Father. He says, know who you are first. Indicative. Then get on with the imperative. Live according to your last name. Too many of us start with the cleanup part, right? Get your life together, and then God may love you. Get things together, clean up a little bit, and then come to church, and then Jesus will give his life for you. John would have no idea what we're talking about. And John actually battled it in the first century church, because there were a whole bunch of people who said, hey, you need to get circumcised first. You need to come underneath the legal and ceremonial law of Judaism, and once you do that, then Jesus will love you. And he and Paul and all the others would go, no, that's nonsense. That's from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. You see, folks, friends, it is no small matter to be called a child of God. Let me repeat that. It is no small matter to be called a child of God. And we take it so flippantly. The God of heaven and all of his perfection and righteousness has said to you, I want you to be my child. And I want you to be my child so much so that I'm going to destroy my true son and crush him so that I'll never crush you. And that you will bear my name and you will bear the love that I have for you. It is no small matter to be a child of God. Don't take it small. Don't take it lightly. It is filled with glory, kavod, heaviness and weightiness. It is glory to be called a child of God. I am honored to bear my father and this earth's name. I'm honored to be Bill McCutcheon III. But I am more honored to bear the name Christian for my heavenly father. And as I would never want to bring shame on my father, earthly father's name, how much more so would I never want to bring shame on my heavenly father's name? But we have reversed those things in this life. We care more about the things of this world than we do about the things of heaven itself. So what does it mean to be called a child of God? It means that God has bestowed his adoptive and elective love upon us. He bestowed it. You didn't earn it. 
He didn't look into the future and see how awesome you would be for Him. He bestowed it on you out of His grace and mercy. And our response? Look at the word He uses there in verse 3. My translation says see. Others say behold. Uh, But the word is is a word in the Greek uh, which means take a look at this with an imperative inflection. Look! Be amazed! When's the last time you've been astonished? Honestly. This isn't a little emoticon, thumbs up. Not a little heart, boy, I love Jesus. It is an amazement that the God of the universe would somehow love me. Because I'll tell you something, I know myself really well. And I know the darkness in my own heart. And I know who I once was. And I know what God has brought me from. And for him to say, Bill, I want you as part of my family and bear my name and that you are a direct reflection of me humbles and astonishes you almost to the point of silence. I want you to be astonished again. And so does John. He said, we, you see, we're commanded to look at how astonishing God's love for us is. John Newton, the former slave trader and, and Christian and hymn writer, wrote in his memoirs, when I get to heaven, I'll be astonished, or I'll be amazed of three things. I'm paraphrasing. One, I will be amazed to see uh, people who I've so longed to see there. Second, I'll be amazed and astonished that some people who I expected to be there aren't. But the third thing is I will be astonished that I am there at all. Does your salvation astonish you to a point of such humility? That you realize, God, I owe you everything. For I am your child. Now for some of you, that brings back this idea of fatherhood of God. Incredible pain because of your earthly father. You see, and it would have for the Greek and the Roman who had read this. Because within the Greco-Roman world, uh, there was this law. There was this freedom of what they called exposure. That the father had the freedom to do with his child whatever he wanted to do. And if he determined that he didn't want the child, he was allowed to expose the child to the elements, to leave them out on a rock somewhere, to leave them out on the sewer, to leave them out and let them be killed, to let them be eaten by wolves, to do whatever because they were unwanted. Or to take the child and to sacrifice the child to the god Saturn or to another god of the Greco-Roman world. And so, so John's saying, no, 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 this is a different kind of father. He's not like the father that abused you as a child, who exposed you. He's not the father who in his wrath hurt you, or who in his lust for freedom left you alone. This is a different kind of God. He'll never expose you like that. He will stay faithful, and he is good, and he is merciful. You see, you are now different because of the completed work of Jesus Christ. You're intrinsically different. Everything is different about you, folks. Do you recognize that? How you relate to the world has totally changed when you become a Christian. If you're a non-Christian and you're here, I want you to hear that. Christianity is holistic. It doesn't just change one part of your life. You don't have to go, oh man, now i got to get my sex life in order. Well, you do. Oh, now i got to get my work in order. Well, you do. But it's a whole lot more than that. It's every part of our lives. And Christian, you need to hear that as well. For too many of us like to hold on to certain things and go, well, I'll give God this part, but I'm not giving him over here. 
Everything changes. The gospel powerfully impacts your life. You are a child of God. Now, based on that, based on the, the indicative of who we are, we now move into the imperative. So, therefore, we practice righteousness by abiding in Christ. We practice righteousness by abiding in Christ. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, verse 4. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. In him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, and he keeps going. So he's saying basically this. Righteousness in your life matters. It is not a little snap-on on the side. It is actually a billboard showing and illuminating what has actually transpired in your life is your attitude towards sinfulness and and sinful behavior in life, the moral law, the beauty of God's law. You see, your salvation, your justification now leading to adoption as a son or daughter of God creates within you a real virtue. It creates within you real holiness. We talk about spiritual transformation over and against behavioral modification. That the heart has to be changed. That's what we're concerned about. But folks, make no mistake, when the heart is transformed, behavior is modified. Too many of us go, oh, I've got Jesus. And then we live however we want to live. John would go, who? That doesn't make sense. You can't claim God as your father and then act like the devil. You can't say that I live in the light of who God is and the purity of who He is and then celebrate in the darkness. What does light have to do with darkness and darkness have to do with light? Christ came and you're now His and you are forever different and it creates in you this new virtue that flows out of you. The law becomes beautiful. It doesn't become easy, it becomes beautiful. Is it hard to obey the moral law? Those of you who walk with Christ for a while, is it difficult? Yeah. It's difficult. It's actually impossible. Because it continues to drive us to Christ. Because he said in here, if you are angry at your brother, you've committed murder. Anybody been angry this week? Boy, we're filled with a bunch of murderous people in here. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to recognize this. Anger is murder in seed form. Lust is adultery in seed form. Waiting for opportunity to bear itself out. And Christ said this, I came for that. I came. I care about that. You were once this, but now you are this. And you are no longer controlled by that sin in your life. It's still in your life. There's still the stain of sin. There is still the corruption of sin that is there, but no longer the domination or the control. You see, verse 8, Christ came to destroy the dominion of sin and Satan on the cross. It was a vicious frontal attack against Satan, crushing his head, Genesis 3.15. He destroyed the dominion of Satan at that point. It doesn't mean, however... That there's still not the residual effect of the fall within our lives. And that's why he talks about two comings. When Christ first came, he destroyed uh, Satan and all of his works. When he comes again, he is going to now restore all that has been lost. And so we look forward to that day. But in the in-between time, one way to think of it is an age of tension. 
The already and the not yet. Christ has come, but he's not yet here fully. The kingdom is already established, but not yet fully here. And so we live with a mindset of the kingdom and citizenship in the kingdom while still being here wrestling with these things of anger and murder and lust and adultery and all of this stuff. And John makes his point over and over again in this section, repetitively in this section. You see, Christians are positionally and practically righteous. You are declared righteous, and then you are to act out that declaration in righteousness in your life. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but grace and faith are never alone, because Christ never lets it stand alone. Those whom He saves, He sanctifies. If He has saved you, if He has declared you His own, you will become like Him. My dad used to have this great little thing on his desk, and it was a man being chiseled out of a, of a block of clay, uh, and it said, be patient with me, God's not done yet. And I saw that, and I wish that I still had it, but that's that picture of sanctification. God is doing a work. He's not fully done with it yet, but he's doing a work in our lives. So what about Christians, or can Christians have habitual sins? Can Christians habitually sin? It's a, it's a debate that's plagued the church for many years, even just down the road in Savannah. Go down and see the garden uh, and see the square of Wesley, and then just up the street from that is the square of, of George Whitfield. Whitfield and Wesley debated this topic, and it divided them as two men who loved Christ and preached the gospel. Wesley said no. Uh, there, there was opportunity within the Christian life for a perfectionism Uh, That you could, in knowing Christ, by the work of His Spirit, have a perfectionism. And in some parts of Methodism, they see that. That sort of higher life teaching. Whitfield said, absolutely not. We wrestle with the flesh all the way until our death, until Christ comes again. But we wrestle with it. We're not under its dominion, but we're still under its stain. I tend towards Whitfield. Every Christian habitually sins, is my understanding. I've also influenced by Douglas Sean O'Donnell and his series of sermons and commentary on this passage. We continue to sin one of two ways. We either struggle with a particular sin or we struggle with a variety of sins in weekly succumbing to them. We struggle with a particular sin and that would look more like an addiction. That we struggle with pornography or struggle with alcohol or struggle with anger or struggle with lust. We struggle with that particular sin. You can fill in the blank. Shopping, gambling, working out, gluttony, all of that. Or we struggle with a variety of sins, but more on a week-by-week basis. Something like this. I'll have an immoral thought one day, and the next day I'll have greed. The next I'll have anxiety and the followed by a day of unrighteous anger, followed by another day of an obscene joke or gesture, then a hating of my parents and then gossip and then some gluttony and then deceit and then vanity and then whatever your list looks like. But we continually sin, folks. But here's the thing. We care about our sin. It bothers us. Either of the addict who is trying and desperately wrestling with an addiction uh, in the life or with one who is just living life and sometimes finds themselves falling into different sins regularly and in pattern of those. We're freed from the dominion of sin, but we are not freed from the corruption of it. William Barclay, the wonderful commentator, said, John is not setting before us a terrifying perfectionism. 
But he is demanding a life which is, never, which is ever on watch against sin. A life in which sin is not the normal, accepted way, but the abnormal moment of defeat. Don't accept it in your life. Fight it. Wrestle with it. The country, the world needs to see the church with righteousness and virtue and purity. And this change takes place over time. Verse 9, and I won't go too long on this. Interesting use of words that he has there uh, in verse 9. Since this is going to take place, no one is born of God and makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning. He's implanted something in you. Interesting what he said. He's implanted deliverance in you so you never have to deal with it again. No, he says, I implant a seed. Any of you planted a seed lately of an oak tree? Maybe an acorn. Yep. Instantaneous, 100-foot oak tree, right? Why? Because the seed takes time to germinate and grow. You plant a tomato seed. What happens instantaneously? A tomato bush with more tomatoes than you ever know, just instantaneously like that, right? No. It takes time to germinate and grow under the right conditions. Interesting choice of words here. I think John is saying this. Yes, there will be a change, but there will also be a gradual change. I've told you this before. If you are the biggest jerk in our entire community, we're so thankful that you're here. And that you don't know Christ, we're so thankful that you're here. And let's say today, you, the biggest jerk in our community, with the worst reputation in our community, come to faith. Guess what you're going to be tomorrow morning? You're going to be a redeemed jerk. Because you've got to let that seed grow in your life and go, I want to follow Christ now. And so maybe it's going to affect my sexual behavior. Maybe it's going to affect my business behavior. Maybe it's going to affect my profanity. Maybe it's going to affect the manner in which I treat women or treat, I can't be a racist and do this. I I can't belittle people in this way. I'm going to change, but it's going to take time. And in the Christian church, we love to apply that to ourselves and hate to apply it to other people. Hey, just give me some time on this. Now you better buck up. Can you believe they did that? And they claim to be a Christian. can't even believe they'd come to church this morning after what I know they did last night. <sighs> Heaven forbid. And I'm not going to tell anybody except my close friends because I'm not going to be a gossiper. <laughs> oh, isn't it interesting? Change takes place, folks. We practice righteousness. We need to take righteousness seriously. We live in a culture that could care less about righteousness. And I believe this culture of the low country is a microcosm of it. That we just have excess in every way. And here comes the gospel which says no. Live differently from the world around you. Third thing, our abiding in Christ, this righteousness that we have, is shown in love. It's shown in love. Verse 16, by this we know love. That he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Our righteousness, our virtue is not in a vacuum. It is not in a vacuum of performance without care and generous love to others. It is not about as the Pharisee would obey all the law and then see a hungry person and not feed them. 
would obey all the law to the jot and tittle of the law, uh, would even tithe to uh, the mint and to the very nth degree. But then when there was someone in need, they wouldn't care. They would close their hearts. Jesus would say, you don't know me. Oh, but I'm righteous. John here goes, but are you loving? Are you gracious? Now begins the avalanche of John's use of the word agape. In this passage and in this uh, chapter, John uses agape nine times. Next chapter, 27 times. For John is going, be righteous, be holy, be virtuous, but be loving. Love your neighbor. It's not righteous and virtuous to see somebody who's in need and you have the resources to meet their need, but you close your heart. If that is what's happening in your life, then you are religious. You are not redeemed. The older brother in Luke 15 was an incredibly religious man who hated both his father and his younger brother. The younger brother was incredibly irreligious. Both were lost. But it's as if the more righteous one, the self-righteous, moral one, the churchgoer, was more lost in that sense. A Christian must have a love for God shown through obedience and for others shown through generous sacrifice. Some people in the church have a very high righteousness and a very low love for others. Ask yourself a question. Are people drawn to you in their brokenness? Are people drawn to you in their brokenness? Are people drawn to you when they're in their lostness. You go, but I'm a very virtuous person. I'm a righteous person. I never cuss. I go to church every week. I read my Bible. I tithe on gross, not on net. I do this. I do that. I'm a righteous person. But no one seems to come to me. You should ask why. Because Jesus, who was the most righteous, most virtuous, most holy, most perfect law-abiding man who ever lived, guess who was drawn to Him? The whore and the drug addict and the leper and the morally bankrupt. They were drawn to Him. And He loved them. Not by saying, don't worry about the law. But by saying, I fulfilled the law on your behalf. Touch me. You'll never be saved by the law. You'll only be saved by me. So are those who are most desperately in need drawn to you? And if they're not, you have to ask why. You have to ask why. Well, it's just because they don't know how wonderful I am. I mean, if they could get by my sneer and condescending looks, they could see that I'm a great and wonderful person. And when they see it in my seat and I give them that little look of, why are you sitting in my seat? Why are you at my church? If they would just get over themselves, they would see I'm awesome. Folks, really? Interesting who was drawn to Jesus and who was repelled by Him. Good southern church folk would be repelled by Jesus in today's culture. But broken hearted people within a metropolitan area on a street would be drawn to Him. The racially diverse those who have no voice are drawn to Him. And if we are His light and voice in the world, they should be drawn to us. 
Our church should be a magnet, a place that draws people in who are broken and hurting. And we look at them and we go, what are you doing here? Get dressed up. No, praise God that you're here. For so once was I. I was just like you. And worse, Paul would say. But God, in His infinite mercy, loved me. And now I'm His. And yeah, I don't get drunk. And I don't sleep around. And I don't cuss. And I try to live a healthy life. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to be around you. Because I'm going to tell you what that's all about. I'm going to tell you about this Christ who implanted Himself in my life. And my life was forever changed in November of 1991. And I have been working out that salvation with fear and trembling. And I am not who I used to be. I am not yet who I will be. But I am thankful for who I am in Him. And I'd love to tell you about Him in all of your messiness. Folks, that's the church, isn't it? And it will make some of you and is making some of you uncomfortable already. And I get it. You may need to go find a museum where pretty people hang on walls And perfect families never talk about their true dysfunction. Where you look at Facebook and go, isn't life grand? And you don't understand that behind that Facebook is a broken heart and a devastated life. And you see a snapshot. Our righteousness is lived out in love to others. And then ending here. In all of this, you have an incredible confidence in this life and in the life to come. John says it a couple of times. He says, now little children, verse 28 of chapter 2, abide in Him, stay with Him, know who you are, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away in Him at His coming. Folks, look at your life. Ask the question, am I basing my salvation on what I'm doing or on Christ and what He's done on my behalf? And I believe by faith and grace by what He's done, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, all of that to the glory of God alone, that I'm doing this to Him imperfectly, but I'm fighting the fight. And I want to be more like Christ. I want to be more like my Savior. If that's the case, then you can have an incredible confidence that when He returns... He's going to look and say, I'm not ashamed of you. You weren't ashamed of me. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. Why does he say enter into your shalom? Because he knows that the battle against sin is not shalom. It's wearisome. Anybody tired again in this battle with sin in the flesh? Few of you. I am. And I look forward to the day that Christ returns. And he doesn't look and go, oh, I'm a cut in June 13th, 1978. Sorry. You punched your friend in the parking lot behind the elementary school. Sorry. Oh, and then you messed up again in November of 2012. Sorry. I saw in you, me. You're mine. My father has you. And you're safe. Enter into your rest. But folks, the only way to get that rest is to be adopted by the King. So today I invite you, bend the knee. Give up your striving and allow Him to love you and accept you in Christ. Let me pray. Father, thank You for this beautiful message from John. The Beloved One that ministers to our hearts. We so desperately want to know that we're loved 
that we're valued and that you, like any good father, you don't get angry with us when we, when we color outside the lines. You take that artwork and you put it on the refrigerator and you celebrate our effort. And so you celebrate us as we strive and as we desire to be more like your Savior. But we also know that you were wounded as an earthly father would be when we rebel against our name and rebel against you. And so forgive us through Christ of our rebellions, our lack of attention to these things. And I pray that we would come to a place of great assurance and knowledge to be righteous and virtuous people who are incredibly loving and gracious and many would be drawn to you, not to us, and would come to faith in the Son, our Savior. Behold our God, seated on a throne, that we look up and with a smiling face, one day we'll be standing there with you. Until then, would we be found and counted faithful and true. To Christ be the glory. Amen. Let's stand and sing.